Section 16 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by david hume volume one f section sixteen chapter sixty six part one chapter sixty six charles the second if we consider the projects of the famous cabal it will appear hard to determine whether the end which those ministers pursued were more blamable and pernicious or the means by which they were to effect it more impolitic and imprudent though they might talk only of recovering or fixing the king's authority their intention could be no other than that of making him absolute since it was not possible to regain or maintain in opposition to the people any of those powers of the crown abolished by late law or custom without subduing the people and rendering the royal prerogative entirely uncontrollable against such a scheme they might foresee that every part of the nation would declare themselves not only the old parliamentary faction which though they kept not in a body were still numerous but even the greatest royalists who were indeed attached to monarchy but desired to see it limited and restrained by law it had appeared that the present parliament though elected during the greatest prevalence of the royal party was yet tenacious of popular privileges and retained a considerable jealousy of the crown even before they had received any just ground of suspicion the guards therefore together with a small army new levied and undisciplined and composed too of englishmen were almost the only domestic resources which the king could depend on in the prosecution of these dangerous counsels the assistance of the french king was no doubt deemed by the cabal a considerable support in the schemes which they were forming but it is not easily conceived they could imagine themselves capable of directing and employing an associate of so domineering a character they ought justly to have suspected that it would be the sole intention of lewis as it evidently was his interest to raise incurable jealousies between the king and his people and that he saw how much a steady uniform government in this island whether free or absolute would form invincible barriers to his ambition should his assistance be demanded if he sent a small supply it would only serve to enrage the people and render the breach altogether irreparable if he furnished a great force sufficient to subdue the nation there was little reason to trust his generosity with regard to the use which he would make of this advantage in all its other parts the plan of the cabal it must be confessed appears equally absurd and incongruous if the war with holland were attended with great success and involved the subjection of the republic such an accession of force must fall to lewis not to charles and what hopes afterwards of resisting by the greatest unanimity so mighty a monarch how dangerous or rather how ruinous to depend upon his assistance against domestic discontents 
if the dutch by their own vigor and the assistance of allies were able to defend themselves and could bring the war to an equality the french arms would be so employed abroad that no considerable reinforcement could thence be expected to second the king's enterprises in england and might not the project of overawing and subduing the people be esteemed of itself sufficiently odious without the aggravation of sacrificing that state which they regarded as their best ally and with which on many accounts they were desirous of maintaining the greatest concord and strictest confederacy whatever views likewise might be entertained of promoting by these measures the catholic religion they could only tend to render all the other schemes abortive and make them fall with inevitable ruin upon the projectors the catholic religion indeed were it established is better fitted than the protestant for supporting an absolute monarchy but would any man have bought of it as the means of acquiring arbitrary authority in england where it was more detested than even slavery itself it must be allowed that the difficulties and even inconsistencies attending the schemes of the cabal are so numerous and obvious that one feels at first an inclination to deny the reality of those schemes and to suppose them entirely the chimeras of calumny and faction but the utter impossibility of accounting by any other hypothesis for those strange measures embraced by the court as well as for the numerous circumstances which accompanied them obliges us to acknowledge though there remains no direct evidence of it that a formal plan was laid for changing the religion and subverting the constitution of england and that the king and the ministry were in reality conspirators against the people what is most probable in human affairs is not always true and a very minute circumstance overlooked in our speculations serves often to explain events which may seem the most surprising and unaccountable sir john dalrymple has since published some other curious particulars with regard to this treaty we find that it was concerted and signed with the privity alone of four popish councillors of the kings arlington arundel clifford and sir richard beeling the secret was kept from buckingham ashley and lauderdale in order to engage them to take part in it a very refined and a very mean artifice was fallen upon by the king after the secret conclusion and signature of the treaty the king pretended to these three ministers that for smaller matters and the ordinary occurrences of life nor had he application enough to carry his view to distant consequences or to digest and adjust any plan of political operations as he scarcely ever thought twice on any one subject every appearance of advantage was apt to seduce him and when he found his way obstructed by unlooked-for difficulties he readily turned aside into the first path where he expected more to gratify the natural indolence of his disposition to this versatility or pliancy of genius he himself was inclined to trust and he thought that after trying an experiment for enlarging his authority and altering the national religion he could easily if it failed return into the ordinary channel of government but the suspicions of the people though they burst not forth at once were by this attempt rendered altogether incurable 
and the more they reflected on the circumstances attending it, the more resentment and jealousy were they apt to entertain. They observed that the king never had any favorite, that he was never governed by his ministers, scarcely even by his mistresses, and that he himself was the chief spring of all public councils. Whatever appearance, therefore, of a change might be assumed, they still suspected that the same project was secretly in agitation, and they deemed no precaution too great to secure them against the pernicious consequences of such measures. He wished to have a treaty and alliance with France for mutual supports and for a Dutch war, and when various pretended obstacles and difficulties were surmounted, a sham treaty was concluded with their consent and approbation, containing every article of the former real treaty, except that of the king's change of religion. However, there was virtually involved, even in this treaty, the assuming of absolute government in England, for the support of French troops, and a war with Holland, so contrary to the interest and inclinations of his people, could mean nothing else. One cannot sufficiently admire the absolute want of common sense which appears throughout the whole of this criminal transaction. For if popery was so much the object of national horror, that even the king's three ministers, Buckingham, Ashley, and Lauderdale, and such profligate ones too, either would not or durst not receive it, what hopes could he entertain of forcing the nation into that communion? Considering the state of the kingdom, full of veteran and zealous soldiers, bred during the civil wars, it is probable that he had not kept the crown two months after a declaration so wild and extravagant. This was probably the reason why the King of France and the French minister always dissuaded him from taking off the mask, till the successes of the Dutch war should render that measure prudent and practicable. The king, sensible of this jealousy, was inclined thenceforth not to trust his people, of whom he had even before entertained a great diffidence. And though obliged to make a separate peace, he still kept up connections with the French monarch. He apologized for deserting his ally, by presenting to him all the real, undissembled difficulties under which he labored, and Lewis, with greatest complacence and good humor, admitted the validity of his excuses. The duke, likewise, conscious that his principles and conduct had rendered him still more obnoxious to the people, maintained on his own account a separate correspondence with the French court, and entered into particular connections with Louis, which these princes dignified with the name of friendship. The duke had only in view to secure his succession, and favor the Catholics, and it must be acknowledged to his praise, that though his schemes were in some particulars dangerous to the people, they gave the king no just ground of jealousy. A dutiful subject and an affectionate brother, he knew no other rule of conduct than obedience, and the same unlimited submission which afterwards, when king, he exacted of his people, he was ever willing, before he ascended the throne, to pay to his sovereign. As the king was at peace with all the world, and almost the only prince in Europe placed in that agreeable situation, he thought proper to offer his mediation to the contending powers, in order to compose their differences. 
France, willing to negotiate under so favorable a mediator, readily accepted of Charles's offer. But it was apprehended that, for a like reason, the allies would be inclined to refuse it. In order to give a sanction to his new measures, the king invited Temple from his retreat, and appointed him ambassador to the states. That wise minister, reflecting on the unhappy issue of his former undertakings, and the fatal turn of counsels which had occasioned it, resolved, before he embarked anew, to acquaint himself as far as possible with the real intentions of the king, in those popular measures which he seemed again to have adopted. After blaming the dangerous schemes of the cabal, which Charles was desirous to excuse, he told his majesty very plainly, that he would find it extremely difficult, if not absolutely impossible, to introduce into England the same system of government and religion which was established in France, that the universal bent of the nation was against both, and it required ages to change the genius and sentiments of a people, that many, who were at the bottom indifferent in matters of religion, would yet oppose all alterations on that head, because they considered that nothing but force of arms could subdue the reluctance of the people against popery, after which they knew there would be no security for civil liberty, that in France every circumstance had long been adjusted to that system of government, and tended to its establishment and support, that the commonalty, being poor and dispirited, were of no account, the nobility, engaged by the prospect or possession of numerous offices, civil and military, were entirely attached to the court. The ecclesiastics, retained by like motives, added the sanction of religion to the principles of civil policy. That in England a great part of the landed property belonged either to the yeomanry or middling gentry. The king had few offices to bestow and could not himself even subsist, much less maintain an army, except by the voluntary supplies of his parliament, that if he had an army on foot, yet if composed of Englishmen, they would never be prevailed on to promote ends which the people so much feared and hated, that the Roman Catholics in England were not the hundredth part of the nation, and in Scotland not the two hundredth, and it seemed against all common sense to hope, by one part, to govern ninety-nine who were of contrary sentiments and dispositions, and that foreign troops, if few, would tend only to inflame hatred and discontent, and how to raise and bring over at once, or to maintain many, it was very difficult to imagine. To these reasonings Temple added the authority of Gourville, a Frenchman, for whom he knew the king had entertained a great esteem. A king of England, said Gourville, who will be the man of his people, is the greatest king in the world. But if he will be anything more, he is nothing at all. The king heard at first this discourse with some impatience. But being a dexterous dissembler, he seemed moved at last, and laying his hand on Temple said, with an appearing cordiality, and I will be the man of my people. Temple, when he went abroad, soon found that the scheme of mediating a peace was likely to prove abortive. The allies, besides their jealousy of the king's mediation, expressed a great ardor for the continuance of war. 
Holland had stipulated with Spain never to come to an accommodation, till all things in Flanders were restored to the condition in which they had been left by the Pyrenean Treaty. The emperor had high pretensions in Alsace, and as the greater part of the empire joined in the alliance, it was hoped that France, so much overmatched in force, would soon be obliged to submit to the terms demanded of her. The Dutch, indeed, oppressed by heavy taxes, as well as checked in their commerce, were desirous of peace, and had few or no claims of their own to retard it, but they could not in gratitude, or even in good policy, abandon allies to whose protection they had so lately been indebted for their safety. The Prince of Orange, likewise, who had great influence in their councils, was all on fire for military fame and was well pleased to be at the head of armies, from which such mighty successes were expected. Under various pretenses, he eluded, during the whole campaign, the meeting with Temple, and after the troops were sent into winter quarters, he told that minister, in his first audience, that till greater impression were made on France, reasonable terms could not be hoped for, and it were therefore vain to negotiate. The success of the campaign had not answered expectation. The Prince of Orange, with a superior army, was opposed in Flanders to the Prince of Conde, and had hoped to penetrate into France by that quarter, where the frontier was then very feeble. After long endeavouring, though in vain, to bring Conde to a battle, he rashly exposed at Senive a wing of his army and that active prince failed not at once to see and to seize the advantage. But this imprudence of the Prince of Orange was amply compensated by his behavior in that obstinate and bloody action which ensued. He rallied his dismayed troops, he led them to the charge, he pushed the veteran and martial troops of France, and he obliged the Prince of Conde, notwithstanding his age and character, to exert greater efforts and to risk his person more than in any action where, even during the heat of youth, he had ever commanded. After sunset the action was continued by the light of the moon, and it was darkness at last, not the weariness of the combatants, which put an end to the contest, and left the victory undecided. The Prince of Orange, said Kuhnd, with candor and generosity, has acted in everything like an old captain, except venturing his life too like a young soldier oudenard was afterwards invested by the prince of orange but he was obliged by the imperial and spanish generals to raise the siege on the approach of the enemy he afterwards besieged and took grave and at the beginning of winter the allied armies broke up with great discontents and complaints on all sides the allies were not more successful in other places louis in a few weeks reconquered franche-gumte in alsace turin displayed against a much superior enemy all that military skill which had long rendered him the most renowned captain of his age and nation by a sudden and forced march he attacked and beat at sensheim the duke of lorraine and caprera general of the imperialist seventy thousand germans poured into alsace and took up their quarters in that province turin who had retired into lorraine returned unexpectedly upon them he attacked and defeated a body of the enemy at mulhausen 
he chased from Colmar the elector of Brandenburg, who commanded the German troops. He gained a new advantage at Turkheim, and having dislodged all the allies, he obliged them to repass the Rhine, full of shame for their multiplied defeats, and still more of anger and complaints against each other. In England all these events were considered by the people with great anxiety and concern, though the king and his ministers affected great indifference with regard to them. Considerable alterations were made about this time in the English ministry. Buckingham was dismissed, who had long, by his wit and entertaining humor, possessed the king's favor. Arlington, now Chamberlain, and Danby, the treasurer, possessed chiefly the king's confidence. Great hatred and jealousy took place between these ministers, and public affairs were somewhat disturbed by their quarrels. But Danby daily gained ground with his master, and Arlington declined in the same proportion. Danby was a frugal minister, and by his application and industry he brought the revenue into tolerable order. He endeavored so to conduct himself as to give offense to no party, and the consequence was that he was able entirely to please none. He was a declared enemy to the French alliance, but never possessed authority enough to overcome the prepossessions which the king and the duke retained towards it. It must be ascribed to the prevalence of that interest, aided by money remitted from Paris, that the Parliament was assembled so late this year, lest they should attempt to engage the King in measures against France during the ensuing campaign. They met not until the approach of summer. End of section 16, chapter 66, part 1. Recording by Jim Dennison. J-I-M-D-E-N-I-S-O-N voice dot com.